Well, hello there. It's Don, and this is Horror House. So here we are, episode one of Horror House. Before we get started on episode one, I just wanted to thank everyone for uh, listening to episode zero, for the love that has been given for episode zero, which was the trailer episode I put out last week. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it gave you a bit of an idea of what to expect from Horror House. And thank you for the love. It was really appreciated. So to kick things off, we have the case of Mary Bell, also known as the Tyneside Strangler, who, and this blew my mind when I was outlining and researching for this, it blew my mind that Mary Bell was 10 years old when she took her first life. 10 years old when she committed her first murder. It's wild, like that, that's wild. So, without further ado, let's get into it, shall we? So Mary Bell was born on the 26th of May 1957 in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. Her mother, Elizabeth Betty Bell, was a well-known prostitute who was often absent from the home. The identity of Mary's biological father is unknown. Mary did believe uh, her father to be William Bell or William Billy Bell, who was a violent drunk and a criminal. However, as Mary was a baby when Billy married her mother, this is unconfirmed. As you can see from the outset, a strong family unit. Mary Bell was a neglected and unwanted child. Um, According to Mary's aunt, Betty resented hospital staff for even placing Mary in her arms, shouting, take that thing away from me. As a baby, a toddler and a young child, Mary frequently suffered accidents while alone in the house with her mother. This did eventually lead to the family believing that her mother was either deliberately negligent towards Mary or next step was attempting to harm Mary. Examples of this include Betty dropping Mary from a first floor window. On another occasion, she supplied Mary with sleeping pills And this is the kicker, though. This is the kicker. She is also known to have once sold Mary, yes, sold Mary, to a mentally unstable woman who was unable to have kids of her own, resulting in Betty's sister having to travel across Newcastle to reclaim Mary, almost as if she was literally baggage. You know, a suitcase that Betty's sister had to go to baggage reclaim to go and pick up. Despite the neglect and abuse that Mary was suffering, Betty refused to accept offers from her family to take custody of Mary. And it's also alleged, as if all that other stuff wasn't bad enough, it's also alleged that Betty, as a dominatrix, began encouraging or allowing several of her clients to also sexually sexually abuse Mary. So... As you can see, 
it wasn't an easy an easy upbringing for Mary, and one one wonders had Mary had a more stable family unit, had she had a more loving and normal upbringing, would she have avoided doing what she does later on in life? Obviously, it's not a excuse, and it's you know it's not a justification, but you know you can ask that question. So back at home and at school. Mary showed all the signs of disturbed and unpredictable behaviour, um, such as sudden mood changes and chronic bedwetting. Um, she was also known to frequently fight with other kids. No gender was safe with Mary. Boy-girl, Mary believed in equal opportunity um, fights with, with kids. Uh, she has also attempted or she's also known to have attempted to strangle and suffocate her classmates on numerous occasions. On one occasion, Mary even attempted to block the trachea of a young girl with sand. So as a result, these incidents made other children pretty fucking hesitant to socialise with Mary, which is... I can I can get that. I can get that. Um, so Mary would spend a lot of her free time with Norma Bell, no relation to Mary. Norma Bell was a thirteen, the thirteen-year-old daughter of a next-door neighbor. So no relation, just became besties. According to a classmate from Delaval, I think I've butchered that pronunciation, but we carry on. From Delaval Road Junior School, by 1968, she and her peers had become accustomed to the marked and sudden changes in Mary's behaviour. This could include uh, shaking her head and forming a steely glaze, the focus of which would be aimed at the individual that she would later go and attack, which something about, you know, a a 10-year-old child locking eyes and just staring at you, I'm, I'm not about that. That's, that's a nope from me. That is a, that is very much a nope from me. On the 11th of May, uh, a three-year-old boy was found dazed and bloody. This was not long before the first incident. The The three-year-old boy later informed police that he had been playing with Mary and Norma atop a disused air raid shelter because, you know, if anything is a, a good place to play, the top of a disused air raid shelter is nothing beats it. Nothing is better than that. So it was during this that one of the girls, it wasn't said which one of the girls, pushed him seven feet from the top of the air raid shelter to the ground, resulting in a pretty, pretty gnarly laceration to his head. That same evening, however, three young, the parents of three young girls came forward to police to state that Mary and Norma had tried to strangle their kids in a sand pit. So, you know, incidents are starting to happen. There, there are the warning signs. The warning signs are there. Both girls were questioned regarding both of the incidents. Uh, they both denied any culpability regarding the air raid shelter incident, claiming that they had simply come across the body after um, the child had fallen. When questioned about the strangulation, Mary denied any knowledge. However, Norma did not deny any any knowledge. She admitted. Mary tried to throttle each of the girls, saying 
Mary went to one of the girls and said, what happens if you choke someone? Do they die? Then Mary put both hands round the girl's throat and squeezed. The girl started to go purple. I told Mary to stop, but she wouldn't. Then she put her hands round Pauline's throat and she started going purple as well. Another girl, Susan Cornish, came up and Mary did the same thing to her. Police were not- police notified, notified the local authority of the incident. However, because of the age of the two girls, a warning was given and no further action was taken. On the 25th of May, 1968, the day before her 11th birthday, Mary strangled four-year-old Martin Brown in a derelict house. Brown's body was discovered with his arms outstretched above his head and laying on his back. Aside from foam in his mouth and specks of blood, no other signs of violence were found. A local workman named John Hall appeared on the scene and he did attempt CPR, but unfortunately he was unsuccessful. The following day, a post-mortem was conducted um, by Dr. Bernard Knight. Knight was unable to find any signs of violence on the body and as a result was unable to determine a cause of death. However, he was able to discount the theory investigators had that Brown had died from um, poisoning through ingesting tablets. On Mary's 11th birthday, she and Norma broke in to and vandalised a nursery. The pair entered the building by peeling tiles off the, sl- off the slate roof. Um, when inside the nursery, they tore books, they turned desks upside down and smeared ink and poster paints before making their escape. Uh, the following day, nursery staff discovered the break-in and notified the police who found four separate notes that claimed responsibility for Brown's murder. One of these notes said, I murder so that I may come back. Another one of the notes that were found said, we did did murder Martin Brown, fuck off, you bastard. The police dismissed these incidents as childish pranks, just kids being kids. Just kids being kids, that's all. They're just having a laugh, innit? Two days later, shortly before the funeral of Martin Brown, both Mary and Norma went to his house, or went to the house of his mother, sorry, June, and asked to see Martin, which is pretty fucked up. Um, but also, But what Mary said after June said that he was dead is also pretty next level disturbing mary replied oh i know he's dead i just want to see the body which is i mean that's that's pretty fucked up i'm not gonna lie that's pretty fucked up mary mary is is yeah she's something right she is something on the 31st of june uh, which was two months after the nursery break-in the body of three-year-old brian howe who was playing with his siblings the family dog, and Mary and Norma Bell was discovered between two large concrete blocks. The first policeman on the scene observed that a feeble but intentional attempt was made to hide the body. Cyanosis was discovered on Brian's lips along with bruises and scratches on his neck. A pair of broken scissors was also discovered by his feet. 
The coroner would conclude that the cause of death was strangulation. The killer had squeezed his nostrils together on with one hand and with the other hand had gripped his throat. Numerous puncture wounds had been inflicted to his legs before his death. Sections of hair had been cut from his head. His genitals had been mutilated and a crude M had been carved into his stomach. I mean, there might be a connection there. Uh, The relatively small force used to murder Brian led to coroners to believe that the murderer was another child. Over 200 detectives were assigned to the investigation after the discovery of Howe's body. Mary and Norma were both questioned uh, due to witnesses informing investigators that both girls were seen with Brian shortly before he died. During the initial interviews, Norma seemed excited Um, whereas Mary was noticeably more observant um, and tactile, one could say. Uh, They both also willingly admitted to having played with Brian shortly before his death, but did deny seeing him past lunchtime on that day. During a further interview the next day, Mary stated that she remembered seeing an eight-year-old boy playing with Brian on the afternoon of the 31st of July and also saw him hitting the child. Furthermore, Mary stated that she also remembered she saw the child covered in grass and weeds and was in possession of scissors. Mary then stated, I saw him trying to cut a cat's tail off with the scissors, but there was something wrong with them. One leg was broken or bent. This statement convinced DCI James Dobson that Mary was responsible, as only the police knew that the scissors were found at the scene. Nobody else knew about the scissors, obviously, apart from Mary. In addition, police also questioned the boy that she did name, and and that boy was found to be at Newcastle Airport on the afternoon of the murder, with numerous witnesses able to confirm the parents' claims. Kind of played yourself there, Mary. On the 4th of August, Norma Bell's parents contacted the police stating that Norma wished to confess to what she knew regarding the murder of Brian Howe. Maybe maybe not so maybe not so much besties anymore. DCI Dobson arrived at the family home, cautioned Norma, then asked her what she knew. Norma told police that Mary had taken her to where the body was located and showed her how she had strangled the child. She also stated that Mary said that she enjoyed strangling Brian before describing how she inflicted the marks on his stomach with a razor blade, which had been hidden at the crime scene, and the broken scissors. Norma also made drawings of the wounds inflicted on the abdomen of the boy, Um, and lo and behold, they matched perfectly with what the coroner had described. Mary was visited at her home the next day, noticeably defensive when confronted with discrepancies in her previous statement. Mary informed detectives, you're trying to brainwash me, I will get a solicitor to get me out of this. Getting noticeably, noticeably defensive and then going, I'm going to get a lawyer, kind of suspicious that will set alarm bells off i think later that day norma made a full statement in which she admitted being president uh, being president definitely not being president being present when mary strangled brian 
Uh, she stated that when the three of them were alone, Mary seemed to go, according to Norma, according to Norma all funny, uh, pushing the child in the grass and attempting to strangle him before saying, my hands are getting thick, take over. Uh, she had then run from the scene, leaving Mary alone with Brian. There was a forensic examination of grey fibres that were found upon Brian's body where an, that were an exact match to a woolen dress owned by Mary. In addition to that, there were maroon fibres found upon the boy's shoes that were a match to a skirt owned by Norma. And in addition to those two things, the same grey fibres had been found upon the body of Martin Brown that matched the same grey fibres found on Brian's body. The gals, the gals, the girls, the besties, as we would say, were fucked at this point. Brian Howe was buried in a local ceremony on the 7th of August 1968. So according to Dobson, who had planned to arrest both girls later that day, Mary Bell had stood outside the Howe household when the coffin was bought from the house to start the procession. Dobson stated that Mary was laughing and rubbing her hands. Mary is a lovely child. Absolutely lovely child. Woof, wowza. Um, so that evening, both girls were formally charged with the murder of Brian Howe. Mary's response, and of course, this would be Mary's response. Mary's response was, that's all right with me. Of course, it would be. Um, Norma, on the other hand, was just a tad less brazen. In fact, she broke down and said, I never, I'll pay you back for this. In the presence of an independent witness, Mary prepared a statement in which she admitted to being present when Brian was murdered. However, she did state that Norma committed the murder. Damn, knife in the back there by Mary. Mary just, just putting that knife in. Oof. Mary also admitted that she and Norma broke into the nursery the day after the murder of Martin Brown, defacing the property before leaving the handwritten notes. Shortly after their arrest, both girls underwent psychological evaluations. Uh, the results of these tests showed that Norma was intellectually delayed and submissive and easily displayed emotion, whereas Mary, on the other hand, was a bright yet cunning character, prone to sudden mood swings. Um, while occasionally willing to talk, Mary rapidly became sullen, defensive, and introspective. The four psychiatrists that examined Mary, that's right, four, you are a, a very interesting case study if four psychiatrists are examining you, um, concluded that although not suffering from, men from a mental disorder, she suffered from a psycho psychopathic personality disorder. In his report for the Director of Public Prosecutions, Dr. David Westbury concluded that Mary's social techniques are primitive um, and they take the form of automatic denial, manipulation, bullying, complaining and violence. What a wonderful cocktail that is, right? So the trial of the girls for the murder of Martin Brown and Brian Howe began on the 5th of December 1968. Uh, both girls pled not guilty to the charges against them 
um, against protests from both from both defence councils, Judge Kuzak waived the girls' rights to anim- an- anonymity on account of their age. So this meant that the press were able to publicise the names, the ages, and the photographs of both Mary and Norma. While Rudolf Lyons conceded in his opening statement that despite the age differences of the two, Mary was the was the more dominant figure. He stated that both girls had acted in unison and were both capable of killing, killing both boys solely for the pleasure and the entertainment. On the fifth day of the trial, Norma testified in her own defence, which is uh, brave. She denied any culpability in the actual murder of each child, however admitted to knowing Mary's penchant for violence and her history of attacking children. Questioned as to if Mary had shown her how children could be killed, she nodded. Um, She also conceded that as Mary began to strangle Brian, she didn't alert a group of boys that were nearby as I did not know what was going to happen in the first place. She had stopped hurting him for a bit when the boys were near the concrete blocks. Questioned to her own role in the murder, Norma stated that she had never touched the child um, herself. Following the conclusion of Norma's testimony, Mary testified in her own defence, which is even braver than Norma testifying in her own defence. Mary's like, I'm, I'm, I'm defending myself. I'm defending myself. Um, her testimony concluded on the 13th of December and had to be adjourned on one occasion when she cried into a policewoman's arms. Mary denied all of Norma's accusations, insisting that although she she had observed the body of Martin Brown, she herself never harmed the child and that she and Norma had only asked the boy's mother to view his body because the two were daring each other and one of us did not want to be a chicken. I mean, I'm not sure that's a good reason, to be honest. Um, she also admitted that the f- that she had shared her knowledge of Martin's death so that Norma could get put away. That that best friend train is is really starting to wobble, isn't it? It's it's it hasn't fully derailed yet. That's gonna happen a little bit later, but it's it's starting to wobble. It's starting to get a bit unsteady on the rails, isn't it? Questioned with regards to the death of Brian Howe, Mary said that Norma was responsible. Um, as she was just standing and looking, I couldn't move. It was as if some glue was pulling us down. See that? Yeah, told you that best friend train, right? It's it's on on well on the way to derailment. It's it's really wobbly right now. It's really unsteady on those rails. Mary then alleged that Norma had encouraged Brian to lay down if he wants some sweets, saying, you've got to lie down for the lady to come with the sweets, and then proceeded to strangle him with her bare hands. Mary further stated that she could see the amount of force used because her fingertips and nails were going white, and again conceded that she failed to inform police of her knowledge of Norma's actions due to fear and a misguided sense of loyalty. Norma's mother, Catherine, 
also testified that several months prior to Brian Howe's murder, she and her husband caught Mary strangling Norma's younger sister. And Mary, and Mary only stopped when Catherine's husband punched her in the shoulder. During closing arguments, Norma's defence counsel, R.P. Smith, emphasised that although both girls were tried together, there was no concrete evidence that Norma killed the boys. Smith also implored the jury to suppress any feelings of outrage and malice and dispel the idea that both girls pay for the actions of one. Harvey Harvey Robson, uh, the defence counsel for Mary, illustrated her dysfunctional upbringing and broken family in addition to the blurring of lines between reality and fantasy in Mary's mind. The testimony of Dr. David Westbury, who had been interviewed or who had interviewed Mary several times before the trial, um, was also referenced. In this testimony, Westbury stated that he formed a definite view that Mary suffered from a mental disorder, which he describes as a retarded development of her mind, which had co- which had been caused by both genetic and environmental factors. As a result, Westbury stated that this had impaired Mary's responsibility for her acts. Referencing the notes left at the nursery after the Martin Brown murder, Robson states that the notes prove the crimes were a childish fantasy and, in Mary's case, were left to bring attention to herself. In his closing argument, Rudolf Lyons described the case as macabre and grotesque, in which Mary, clearly the dominant of the two, despite being the youngest, wielded a very compelling influence, reminiscent of the fictional Svengali, over Norma, stating, I forecast to you that the younger girl, although two years and two months younger than the other, was nevertheless the cleverer and more dominating personality. Outlining the numerous lies Mary had told both police and the court, Lyons further remarked on Mary's lack of remorse and high degree of cunning. On the 17th of December, the jury retired to consider their verdict. After only three hours and 25 minutes of deliberation, they reached that verdict. Mary Bell was cleared of murder, however, was charged with manslaughter of both boys on the grounds of diminished responsibility. Norma was acquitted and cleared of all charges. Uh, Upon hearing the verdicts, Norma clapped her hands in excitement while Mary broke down, as did her mother and her grandmother. Upon passing the sentence, Judge Kuzak described Bell as a dangerous individual, adding that she posed a very grave risk to other children and that steps must be taken to protect the public from her. She was sentenced to be detained at Her Majesty's pleasure, which is essentially an indefinite prison sentence. So Bell was initially held in Durham Remand Home uh, before being transferred to a second Remand Home in South Norwood. She was then transferred to a or to Red Bank Secure Units, which was a young offenders institution in Merseyside, which has now closed, I believe. Um, and she was transferred there 
in early 1969 and was the only female among 24 um, inmates. Bell also stated that she was raped by both a member of staff and several inmates at this facility, claiming that it started when she was 13. In November 1973, Bell was moved to a secure wing in HM prison style in Cheshire in the UK when she was 16. She reportedly resented her transfer um, and unsuccessfully applied for parole. In June 1976, Bell was again moved, this time to Moore Court's open prison, where she undertook a secretarial course. Bell once again hit the papers in 1977, uh, when she and inmate Annette Priest briefly escaped. Uh, both spent several days in the company of two men in Blackpool, England, um, visiting the amusements and sleeping in various hotels. See, poor Mary just wanted to win some pennies. That's all. Just wanted to win some pennies and ride some roller coasters. Who can blame her, right? Um, Bell also used an alias, um, Mary Robinson, before the two girls parted ways. So, guess what? Mary was rearrested. Shock and horror, right? Mary Mary Bell was rearrested at the Derbyshire home of Clive Shirtcliffe on December the 13th. Um, she was returned to custody later that evening and her penalty for absconding was a loss of prison privileges for 28 days. So in June 1979, the Home Office announced their plans to move Bell to HM Prison Ascombe Grange, which was an open security prison in preparation for her planned release the next year. In November 1979, Bell worked first as a secretary, then as a waitress at a cafe in York Minster under supervision guidelines. Mary Bell was released in May 1980 at the age of 23, having served almost 11 and a half years in various prisons. She was granted an anonymity Um, including a new name, allowing her to start a new life elsewhere under a new identity. When released, a spokesman for Bell is quoted as saying, Bell wishes to be given a chance to live a normal life and to be left alone. Four years after her release, Bell gave birth to her only daughter. Um, Her daughter knew absolutely nothing of Bell's crimes and... and, um, all of that stuff until she was 14 uh, when reporters discovered Bell's then location on the Sussex coast. Um, this event forced Bell and her daughter to leave their home and to be moved to a safe house by undercover officers. In the years since her release, it has been reported that Bell has returned to Tyneside on several times um, and is also alleged to have lived in Newcastle for a period of time. The right to anonymity granted to Bell's daughter originally only extended to the age of 18. However, on the 21st of May 2003, Bell won a High Court battle to have her own anonymity 
that's such a tongue twister Anim- an- anonymity um and that of her daughter extended for the rest of their lives so lifelong anonymity for mary bell and mary bell's daughter uh, the order was also later changed to include um bell's granddaughter jo- uh, born in january 2009 the order also prohibits any divulging of aspects of their lives which may identify them. In 1998, uh, Mary Bell collabed or collaborated with with an author, with author Gita Sereni, or Gita Sereni. Um, I'm sorry, I'm awful with these pronunciations, to provide an account of her life. Um, before and after her crimes for the book Cries Unheard, the story of Mary Bell. In the book, Bell details the abuse she received at the hands of her mother, um, who Bell describes as a dominatrix and her clients. Others interviewed in the book are friends, family and professionals who all knew Bell before, during and after her prison term. According to Sereni, Bell does not claim that she was wrongly convicted and freely admits that the abuse, the abuse she suffered does not excuse the crimes that she committed. I mean, at least, at least Mary Bell's self-aware, right? As for Bell's current whereabouts, your guess is as good as mine. Obviously, with the High Court protection still in place, and the lifelong anonymity provided to Bell and her daughter and her granddaughter, Ma- Mary Bell's current location is a complete unknown, and it's most likely going to stay that way. And that's the first episode of Horror House. Take a deep breath. <sighs> that is the first episode of Horror House in the books. I really hope you enjoyed listening to this episode um and i hope you can enjoy you can join me for next week's episode which will cover um a lady by the name of juana barraza aka the old lady killer in the meantime if you head on over to instagram at hh true crime and the macabre and twitter at hh true crime pod um give those accounts a follow so next friday will be the old lady killer and all that's left to say now is until next time stay spooky